Jason Scores, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. Today's episode is going to be a conversation with Lisa Dyer. Lisa is Director of Policy at the Partnership on AI, uh, AI standing for Artificial Intelligence in San Francisco. And before taking on that role, she was at the State Department for a long and distinguished career. And she is really an expert on kind of the policy surrounding AI, the regulation of AI, and just in general, the kind of questions for society surrounding artificial intelligence and its introduction into society. This is a big topic. It's a topic that is going to be dominating much of the headlines in the news, I think, in the years to come as more of these technologies come online and its impacts are felt. I'm, you know, more and more throughout society, both in good and bad ways, which we touch on in this interview. So uh, I'm just going to launch right into it. And without further ado, my conversation with Lisa Dyer. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Lisa Dyer to talk about artificial intelligence and our future. So Lisa, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Excellent. So to get started, I think the best way would just be if you could give us a quick overview of kind of the current state of AI technology and research so people really know where we are in, in 2019. Well, I would say that the, the field is crowded with money. <laughs> there are a lot of investments and um, a lot of uh, people interested in learning more about artificial intelligence. KPMG said in the first half of 2019, there was $105.7 billion flushing around. Um, a couple of big AI startup funds have come around from Intel Capital, as well as SoftBank, uh, looking at potentially a $28 billion vision fund, which has adjusted a little bit since then. But there's a lot of money um, that because people see the promise of artificial intelligence. I think the real, there are two different areas where people are seeing uh, promise in the near term, what people call narrow AI, which is the applications that we're seeing today. How do you go to a site and it makes recommendations for you to see a particular movie, for instance, and you go, how did they know that I wanna see that particular documentary to, um, some ideas about how it might be applied in healthcare, for instance. And then there are some people out there that are thinking long-term about what if one day artificial intelligence could appear to be as sentient and capable in intelligence as humans, and that's artificial general intelligence. Today, the money, I think, is really flowing into the narrow AI applications. But as you mentioned, a lot of different countries are interested in this and they're, they're investing and they're putting together strategies in the United States, France, the European Commission, Singapore, China, other countries. They're, they're really taking a look at it and seeing what they can do to jumpstart their 
their AI industries within their countries and, and making advancements in the technologies. Great, great. So, you know, obviously there's things that a lot of people are hearing about from everything from kind of the, the, the Go program that was kind of, I think, a breakthrough moment because I think that was more in the, in the mm -hmm. general intelligence, if I'm not mistaken, in the sense that it didn't have a particular kind of mandate and was just, its goal was to just learn. And so that was kind of a breakthrough in that realm. Uh, and then people are seeing driverless cars and, you know, on, and things like that. Are there any areas of research where are kind of off the radar things that you know about that people might be unaware of? Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting, um, there's a lot of interesting work in, uh, in many different areas. I think what's important for people to do is ask questions about what they're seeing is what, is out there, is it, these are some pilots that, that different people are putting forward, is this research? How much of this is really out there in the real world and how much of this is being tested and put forward? And I think those questions vary in different areas. I'm excited about the potential for AI in the healthcare field, to be honest, and mostly from a, very personal standpoint. I know a lot of people. I have family members who have been affected by diseases and cancer and other areas. And there's a lot of potential being talked about AI, about AI and healthcare. And I'd really love to see it come to fruition. It's just, I've learned so far to ask a lot of questions about, is this a research breakthrough? What was the sample size? Was this something that is just a small test or is this something that could be replicated at scale? And then in the AI space, what sort of regulatory approvals might be necessary to make this come to fruition? So um, AI in healthcare to me has a lot of potential and a lot of potential to help individuals around the world. It's just a question of where it might be right now in the pipeline. Yeah, I was I was reading some and, and watching some footage on some kind of cancer researchers in AI and just the ability for computers to kind of detect patterns that would be very, very hard for us to detect out of these kind of massive data sets and kind of markers, precancerous kind of markers and things like that. It does seem like if there was ever a kind of unambiguous good that could come from technology it would be in out of you know better predict cancer and things like that so yeah uh, i am with you on that I, I hope we can can use it in that in that direction uh, you know one one other kind of general question before we get into some more of the specifics there's there's just a lot of talk of ai in this kind of it's this paradigm shifting it's this new industrial revolution it's going to be incredibly disruptive basically everything's pretty hyperbolic when it comes to ai and i i wonder if you think that is justified or if you think any of the the hype is a little overblown and sensationalistic. I think it is, and I think that's because there, it is a difficult, it's a technical topic and one that requires people to really dig into um, and ask questions about and probe and educate themselves for people to really understand where it is in the state of art right now. It's really easy to throw lingos around. It's the next 
electricity. It's like electricity. It's going to affect our lives just as much. It's going to, we're in an arms race, a space race with China. There are lots of cute phrases that come around artificial intelligence that I help, I think helps accelerate the hype around it. I think there are lots of, there's so much potential and, um, but things that boil it down into those cute phrases doesn't help with this, with the public understanding. If you, if you really, if you really want to understand it, you need to ask some questions and dig into the technology and, and understand how it's going to impact you on a personal level, um, rather than rely on those phrases. Great, great. Well, it seems like you're advocating a kind of more sober, inquisitive posture towards AI. And so let's, uh, let's follow your lead here. <laughs> and, um, and maybe let's talk on the positive first, because I think a lot of this is talked about in the negative and kind of the, the potential you know, unintended consequences and job displacement, which we'll get to. But, you know, you, you mentioned, obviously, the, the, the potential healthcare benefits. Are there other areas where you see AI really weighted towards the positive for humanity, where you're really excited about what it can do? Well, we've talked about healthcare. Um, I think it can do a lot to assist the disability community as well, um, whether hearing or visual impairments. I think there are some opportunities to provide employment in new ways that people have not been employed before. But with those jagged edge lines come the potential downsides, right? If you don't use these technologies smartly, they can be applied in some really terrible ways. Some of the great ways that facial recognition technology can be used to support the visually impaired community can also be used to uh, focus on a particular um, community and harm that particular community. So it has this jagged edge side of it where the benefits to humanities also have the down potential downfalls if it's not employed and used in a responsible and ethical way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in this PBS frontline documentary that we had been discussing, there was a lot of talk of China using it in this kind of state surveillance AI Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, and then there's the Uyghurs up in you know the Muslim minority population where they're being targeted with facial recognition, and and the AI is really kind of you know it's almost kind of a big brother oppressive state there that they're you know and again I'm I'm not super familiar about it but it definitely seems like where AI go, goes off the rails is in a context like that. Absolutely, absolutely, and I I because I think it has the potential to help it's the same technology that is applied to assisting those who have visual impairments is the same technology that's being used in that space. How do we come up with policy solutions that allows us conti- to continue to use computer vision technology? That's the, the term. Um, for those folks, but not allow it to be used for targeting a particular population such as the Uyghurs. 
right kind of for discriminatory purposes mm -hmm. do you do you have a sense that the policy climate in the u.s is up to the task are you following kind of legislation both at the state and federal level and kind of assessing where it is in, in, in this in this in your view you know um we are we are we follow legislation closely around the world. And one of the things that we have seen is some really well-intentioned bills that have been submitted in different places around the world. And where we see some of those bills falling apart is not fully defining the correct terms for what the bills are intended to, should they be passed into law, legislate, or not a complete understanding of the technology or incomplete definitions of what people are trying to achieve. And bad legislation is just as terrible as no legislation. And so we're hoping that we can provide a better public understanding of the types of technology that are out there to inform lawmakers as they think about passing these, passing bills. I will say that right now it's really easy for legislators to get drawn into these other major um, dramas, <laughs> I would say, such as impeachment hearings or Brexit or things like that, that pull the national legislative bodies into these very deep and important questions. But when it comes time to passing laws around responsibly using artificial intelligence in whatever form, the bandwidth just isn't there for them to do it. In the meantime, the technology keeps progressing. Yeah, well, that is the, that's this, the, this era in a nutshell, right? We have the, kind of the forces of chaos just kind of crowding the system with, with legitimate distraction of their many crimes, but, but, uh, but then it's drawing us away from these longer term, whether it's climate change or AI. So uh, mm -hmm. we certainly need to return to a system in which our, our, our political leaders are not drawing so much oxygen out of the room for their, for their corruption on a daily basis. That would, that would certainly free up a lot of space to do this stuff. Um, on that note, are there any bills in Congress right now that are being introduced or discussed that you think are a good template for how to begin kind of regulating this space? Um, you know, there were, there was a bill about a algorithmic accountability that came out recently that tried to put some some real guardrails about how algorithms how algorithms are used and algorithms are used in a lot of different places not just artificial intelligence but it was i think a good first stop start in that area um, some other bills i think are well intentioned but really they have some definitional issues among others um, that make it a little challenging to to see them doing a good job of, of making the world a better place which is the basic way i think of when we pass laws that's what they should do right right and that that algorithmic law did that pass or is that still being debated it's still a bill it's still a bill okay yeah. all right well maybe moving on to i think you know it's, it's worth touching on some of the fears that many people have and i think mm -hmm. the main one aside from the kind of apocalyptic or the state surveillance genres would be kind of the the employment impacts that that a lot of ai technology is going to displace large segments of workers and and also not just the traditional kind of blue collar workers whether it's robotics but actually 
more of the white collar jobs, you know, whether it's kind of accountants or legal experts, because AI will be able to do a lot of these routine, more routine tasks, much more competently and faster than humans. And I was wondering what your, what your view is on the kind of AI as job displacement versus kind of job enhancing, and how you see that. You know, that is the, the billion trillion dollar question as to what it might be. There are some who are optimistic that says, hey, if AI frees us up from these, uh, from certain tasks that allows humanity to be more creative and apply their talents in different ways. And then there's the other side of it, uh, which is mostly the people who are performing these tasks today that say, what else am I going to do? And they are justifiably frightened by the prospect of if this if my job goes away what what do i do there's a really incredible documentary out there called american factory that talked about a chinese firm bringing a, a glass factory to dayton ohio and employing people in that factory and there were elements of automation that uh, were relevant to that story. And I won't spoil it for people, but I highly recommend people take a look at it because I think it perfectly encapsulates the shift away from the manufacturing base that we had into overseas manufacturing, into talents that are no longer as desired that can be done by robotics. And in some cases that actually automation makes the workplace safer. My grandmother was so proud that she was part of the generation that helped put a man on a moon. She worked in a factory and she came away from that factory with lead poisoning because she was working with materials that are poisonous. There are a lot of systemic reasons as to why my grandmother was exposed to lead, but automation does help protect people from some of those really dangerous aspects of manufacturing. So I think it's a triple-edged sword, right? Um, I think putting yourself in the shoes of the people who are most fearful about not having a job or losing their job or their job being outsourced to a machine is absolutely essential. And I think sometimes that's lacking in these conversations about what happens to people with jobs and skills displacement. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that, that the documentary you, you cited there that I think that was Obama's first in his kind of Netflix uh, contract, even though he's not in it, he helped, uh, he helped put that together. And I do recommend that highly as well. I, I think what a lot of people, you know, forget to realize is that a lot of these trends have been going on for a long time, right? People mm -hmm. think of manufacturing as very weak in the US. And I always, when I give talks on this, I put a graph that shows manufacturing output in the US is at a record high. We're actually a manufacturing superpower still. It's just the employment is at a record low, right? Or at yeah. least close to a record low. And that people don't see that. They think of factories as full of people, but we have huge factories. They're just not full of people anymore, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that is the big difference. Um, maybe moving on just a little to the, the more kind of out there sci-fi element. I, I, I was with an AI, top AI engineer from Carnegie Mellon a, a couple months ago, and we were talking about the potential for AI, especially the, the artificial general intelligence, to maybe do some stuff that was against our interests on its own, that if it really kind of got unleashed and created a different kind of objective function than maybe what we had started it with, 
and he he was completely unconcerned about this. He thought that was kind of sci-fi sensationalism, and that since we will always be the ones making the programming, that the AI will always be under our control, and there will never be any risk of it doing anything that you know we ultimately didn't want it to do. I thought that was a pretty high level of optimism, and I was curious if you share that view. You know, I, um, I do. I, I think the human brain is extraordinary and creative and mysterious in so many different ways. I think it's worth examining the question and thinking about long-term where AI is taking us. But AI is already harming humanity while humans are building it. If you are a person of color, for instance, facial recognition systems are actually not recognizing you or misidentifying you, and those are causing harms to you. If you are um, a person of color or a woman, uh, the credit scoring systems that artificial intelligence is using sometimes gives you less access to credit in, the, in today's society. And those are, those are harms to humanity today. So there's a lot we can do to examine harms to humanity in today's world, much less in thinking about should artificial and general intelligence come to fruition one day, what that might actually look like. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I always, I always kind of joke that, yeah, we don't, we don't need anyone else or any other technology to, to do lots of bad things, right? We, we're probably good on doing that ourselves. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Humans don't need, even need technology to be terrible to each other. Yeah, right. We, we, on we, their have, own. Yeah. we have yeah. a long pedigree of that for sure. Uh, one other area where I, I had a, a really interesting conversation with this um, this AI engineer was on this what, something that he was genuinely scared of, which is the ability of AI to help and assist with making fake news, literally fake news, not the stuff that Trump and his minions talk about, which is just stuff that's critical of them, but actual fake news, fake mm -hmm. videos of people, you know, doing things and saying things that they didn't they didn't do. And then what he said was even scarier was that this technology has gotten so good that AI algorithms can't even distinguish true reality from manufactured reality. And that he thinks that's what's coming, which is, you know, the things are going to go viral that some politician said something or some event that's completely false. And it will be very hard for society to be able to kind of parse out what is true and what is not. And that does seem particularly frightening. And I was wondering, what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely, I think we are all concerned about that and a number of the Partnership on AI's partners are involved in those discussions. We have actually created a steering committee on artificial intelligence and media integrity to examine this very issue. And we, we are finding that there are so many different ways to look at this issue, but we we find that it's probably not just a technology solution that's going to bring this to bear. We have a multi-stakeholder approach where we are working with not only the tech industry partners that we have, but also XPRIZE. We're working with journalism, uh, representatives of journalists in the BBC and the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, as well as the New York Times. What we think is it's going to require 
citizen journalists, people to be more thoughtful and ask questions about what they're seeing and asking if it is real. And in the process of us doing this, Facebook is announced a prize to someone who can come up with a solution to detecting these deep fakes. Um, but what we are thinking about in, in the steering committee and elsewhere is how do we also create a tool that allows journalists, for instance, to examine exactly what is in front of them and determine whether it is a, a legitimate source of information or not. And you know, governments also should be, are, I know are very interested in this. When I was working at the State Department, in 2012, 2013, we were receiving all sorts of reports about the terrible atrocities that were taking place in Syria. And one of our biggest challenges was to find out whether what we were seeing was real, what this image or this video that we're seeing was real. Because if what we were seeing was real, we wanted to approach other governments, we wanted to approach the United Nations and others to talk about what we were seeing and bring together a group of governments from around the world to try to investigate and determine whether war crimes were taking place or human rights, gross violations of human rights were taking place. So this is an incredibly important um, activity that we're undertaking in coordination with a number of different partners from around the world. Yeah. You know, it, it seems like your earlier comment about how you know, the kind of the, the scandals of the day are taking so much oxygen out of the system mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, preventing us from the long term thinking, it seems like this is a perfect example of that as well, right? If so much of our energy is going to be spent on is that real instead of responding to it and thinking about it in a kind of larger context, that's just another area where we're just a little going to be behind the eight ball, right? In that sense of, of playing catch up all the time. And uh, especially if things go viral, right? And you know, 10 million people are viewing something and saying something about it and, you know, having to, to kind of react to that. Uh, it just seems incredibly difficult to be playing catch up all the time with these type of technologies. It is, it is. And um, whenever I talk to different people, I always encourage them and I've heard a theme through this podcast, ask questions. Um, because if you don't, no one will. Uh, you can't assume that someone else will and really ask questions behind what you're seeing and the legitimacy of it and should you really think about relying on it or how will this impact you and those I think are you get some very very re revealing answers when you actually take the time to ask questions and ponder those issues yeah. some of it is absolutely entertainment value but it should be entertainment value not something that you know alters the future of democracy yeah you know, the, the, I am fully with you, you know, as, as a professor, I, I teach critical thinking and, and kind of, and I, you know, how to, how to assess the, the validity of information. So I'm, I'm fully 100% on board with that program. I do worry, though, that for the average citizen who's already bombarded by so much information, whether, you know, through all types of media, that whether we're kind of getting to a point of kind of cognitive overload, where people are just not going to have the capacity, especially on really hot button issues that kind of push their emotions and their rage and their fear. Because that, and that, it seems like that's asking a lot of the average citizen in this kind of super wired technological era that we're in. 
I, I absolutely agree with you. I was um, speaking to a woman who made the point that you shouldn't have to educate yourself on, on what technologies are around um, to be able to walk down a street unimpeded without being surveilled. You shouldn't have to educate yourself on what are the details behind a credit score, for instance. But the reality is the world we're living in now, unless something dramatically changes, unless there's some sort of tipping point, that's where we are. And um, I, keep, I keep waiting for a tipping point to happen where people just say enough and that tipping point hasn't come yet. And I don't know if you have any ideas on when that might come, but it seems like it's long time coming. Yeah, I, I, I don't, but I just read a book, uh, it's from the 1990s, it's called The Absence of the Sacred by Gerrymander. And it's mm -hmm. actually the guy I think who gerrymandering was, was named after. Uh, but he was a kind of an anti, I wouldn't say anti-technologist, that would be too strong. But he wrote the book in the 70s, The Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. And he, he basically kind of is, is making some of these points about this kind of question in the ine inevitability of technological progress, questioning whether technology is ultimately good for society. Because I, I think, for example, I, I think I would state strongly that social media, with what I call anti-social media, is unambiguously bad for society. Like I think mm -hmm. Facebook is a net evil by so many on so many dimensions that it's not even. I wouldn't even need to really to justify it much, and probably most people would pretty um, uh, immediately agree. And so, I just wonder, you know, this march of technological progress, it does unlock so much good. But I do, I do wonder if that tipping point is coming where people might start disengaging. You know, I'm slowly starting to do it on with the phone. You know, I don't want to be addicted to the phone. And so I'm thinking of hacks to, like I made my screen black and white. I took all the notifications off so I don't see the little numbers on the email telling me how many emails I have. So I want to open it, you know, little things like that to disengage. And I don't, I don't know. I, I obviously, I, I don't have an answer to this, but I, I am starting to wonder if, if it's going to require people being so vigilant and if that's not possible that that something's unsustainable you know in that in that equation well first of all good for you <laughs> i could learn from what you have done i you know i think some of these questions have come up for for eons you know was fire good for us um and even when I was a kid, my grandmother used to yell at me for sitting too close to the television because she was convinced radiation was emitting from the television. <laughs> and I was, I was absorbing that radiation. Um, it, it's an excellent question. And one I struggle with every day because technology affords conveniences. Um, technology affords people to stay in touch. I, you know, my nephews live in the middle of the United States and I live in San Francisco and I was able to keep up with their soccer games because someone was live tweeting what was going on. And I can't tell you how much it meant to me that that person took the time to do that and made me feel a part of something so important to my nephews and their high school lives, right? It has made a tremendous impact on people with disabilities. It has made tremendous advances in, in healthcare, not artificial intelligence 
exclusively, but healthcare has advanced in so many different ways that it's incredible. Um, and yet there, there are those downsides. So how do you keep the good but not emphasize the bad, I think is, is an, a question for our lifetimes, um, for the millennia actually. And I wish I had better answers, but it's one that I think about as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm definitely with you that, uh, th yeah, we definitely don't wanna throw out the good. The good is, is so good that it, we definitely wanna keep it, but the bad, the, the bad part of the ledger seems to be growing heavier by the day, and I, I don't think it's sustainable. So we'll have to see. I deleted my Facebook account also. I urge everyone to delete their Facebook accounts. I think Zuckerberg is an uncorrigible, um, greedy liar. Um, and so I'm going to just say it again. I think everybody should delete their Facebook. The world would be a lot better without that platform. Um, but but get, I'll get off my soapbox here and let, get, come back to you here. Uh, and just kind of, you know, as we wrap up here, are there any aspects of AI research that you think the, you know, people don't should be more aware of, things people are confused, like, you know, anything we didn't touch on here that you want to make sure we get across to the listeners? You know, um, that's a great question because I think the world of AI research is, it sometimes speaks to other AI researchers. And we in the AI ML community could do a better job of speaking to the public and making those translating why this particular piece of research is important to the future of artificial intelligence or today's artificial intelligence and why someone took the time to actually delve into that particular problem. So I think there's one big thing that could be done and that's the translation. Um, sometimes you'll see a paper and it is full of equations, et cetera, et cetera. And many people's education doesn't extend itself into that. Or like me, you've seen those equations before, but it's been 20 some years because you've gone on and done something else in your, in your professional career. So I think there's actually the onus is more on the research community to do a better job of translating that work into the general public. And that's one of the reasons I'm here. It's one of the reasons I work with my colleagues to do just that. Great, great. Well, I think, you know, this will be a good intro for people who are thinking about these issues and it is certainly not going to go away. So uh, if, you know, in the, I'm going to make a prediction here that in the 2020 election, the, the deep fake, will raise their ugly head and that will become a big storyline. I don't mean to be the cynic, but I, I'm sure someone in the right wing is already working on, you know, a fake Elizabeth Warren video or whatever. <laughs> um, and so uh, so maybe if that does come to fruition, we'll, we'll have you back on here to discuss the implications and how we should respond. Um, and yeah. not to mention third party actors, actors outside of the United States that want to stabilize our elections, yeah. Yeah, especially with the president basically inviting them all in. Uh, I think it'll be more than just the Russians this time, right? I'm sure the Chinese and the North Koreans will throw their lot in the mix. Uh, so it should be, should be a bumpy ride in 2020. I keep telling everyone to buckle up for 2020. It is going to be a wild one. Uh, and it's coming quickly. And it's coming quickly. All right, well, with that, Lisa, thanks so much for taking the time. Have a you know, happy holiday season. And uh, obviously, if there's any uh, innovations or things that 
come to your attention that you think I, I you know, that me and my listeners would be interested in, please, please forward it and I'll, I'll mention it on the future podcast. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. And it was a pleasure talking to you, Jason. Awesome. Awesome. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Lisa. I think we touched on a lot of very important topics and certainly a lot of food for thought going forward. The antidotes for today are quite simple. I just want to echo what Lisa recommended, which is that as cognitively challenging as it is in this day and age to be a critical thinker and to kind of be aware of where our news comes from, the quality of information, I think it is becoming ever, ever more important that we do so. And so when you get that email or you see it on social media or on the news and it's something really provocative, you know, be a little, you know, cautionary before sharing it with all your friends. Take a step back and just take a deep breath. Make sure it's coming from someone you trust. Make sure the source is someone you trust. And just just take a deep breath before forwarding, uh, especially volatile information you know there's that saying that says before you send hit send on the email that's a little harsh and a little intense to maybe take a you know take a walk around the block go uh, have a cup of tea and don't hit send right away i think we should do that more than just email but really on any kind of volatile combustible information and there's a lot of it's going to be out there but we really got to take a step back and, and really make sure that we are contributing to you know the spread of good information and not bad and that is going to become increasingly challenging but is going to be increasingly important in this day and age so with that everybody as the holidays are coming up i hope you uh, have a good time with your family and your friends and you know just tune out from technology that's also another recommendation just turn off the phone turn off the tv turn off the computer and just get some good quality time with your friends and family. Have a drink, sit around a fire, sit around the dinner table, and just talk and engage people face-to-face. That is really the antidote for these crazy times. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Stitcher. Rate it. And uh, with that, again, I hope you have some great times with your family coming up and you get to kind of detox and unwind and relax. And with that, uh, have a great rest of the week. Take care.